Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, and I'm here with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hey, Andy. And no, he's not a regular yet, but he's back again. Professor Brad Snyder from Georgetown Law School. Hello, Brad. Thanks for having me, Andy Nikhil. It's great to be back. Yes, and we've had a, a very, very stimulating discussion um, that we began last week on the on Brad's new book, uh, Democratic Justice, Felix Frankfurter, the Supreme Court, and the Making of the Liberal Establishment. And this this opus is really triggered a tremendously interesting conversation. We spent the entire week, uh, the entire episode last week, talking about the man, Felix Frankfurter, and the, this incredible uh, journey that he had, the career that spanned uh, many decades and many and every branch of government, uh, not necessarily officially, but um, in one way or another, and uh, various continents and issues and uh, you name it. Um, so... But this is a constitutional law podcast, and we really want to devote this episode to a discussion of Felix Frankfurter uh, and the Constitution, or Felix Frankfurter and the court, or Felix Frankfurter and theories of constitutional law. Akil, I know that you uh, have a very tame approach to uh, to this week's uh, episode. <laughs> so I love Brad's book, and I love Brad, and and I especially love the first half of of the book profiling just an extraordinary life lived in the law. Frankfurter was everywhere, did everything, and that's what we talked about in the last episode. That said, I'm not particularly a fan of Justice Frankfurter in the, in the second half of his legal career. And so I want to give Brad an opportunity to respond to kind of slashing critique that I will offer of Justice Frankfurter. Admire, though I am, of everything that, that of so much of what Frankfurter did before he became a justice. Because in my view, uh, Frankfurter was not a great justice at all. And I'll tell you what counts as a great justice and, and we can actually then compare. I'm an originalist and my hero is going to be an originalist uh, justice, Hugo Black, who was a contemporary of Frankfurter's. And I'm going to draw the contrast be- between the two. We talked last week a bit about this man, James Bradley Thayer. We'll talk, I think we should talk a little bit more about him and, and explain his ideas. He basically thought that judges should be very deferential to legislatures, but truthfully he talked about uh, out of both sides of his mouth. He said, oh, only when it comes to Congress, Supreme Court should be, and, and federal courts in general should be very deferential to Congress. There's a more robust role that's permissible when we're dealing with states. Thayer said that. But in fact, actually, Thayer himself and all the Thayerites, in fact, are upset about all sorts of cases that don't involve Congress, but just involve states like Lochner versus New York, which is about maximum hour laws or minimum wage laws in in a case involving the state of Oregon and all sorts of other regulatory laws that basically uh, are about states. And and Frankfurt, over the course of his life, is going to be deferring all the time, and I think ridiculously, to state after state after state that are doing 
bad things uh, to West Virginia that's actually mistreating public school students, obliging them to loot a flag, even though that's contrary to their political and, and religious views, upholding states and, in fact, outlier states like Maryland that don't let felon defendants get appointed counsel, indigent felon defendants. That's going to later become a Gideon case out of, out of Florida. But, but Frankfurt is going to be deferring, in my view, improperly, to states. States are going to have mal- grossly malapportioned legislatures, massively malapportioned, and Frankfurt is just going to kind of mindlessly preach deference to that, even though that would be ultimately destructive of democracy, properly understood, and many, many, many other cases. They are said, oh, just be deferential to Congress, but in fact, when you actually look at it, Thayer and and Thayerians from Oliver Wendell Holmes on the one side to Felix Frankfurt on the other are unduly deferring to horrible state practices. In the case of Oliver Wendell Holmes, where a state of Virginia sterilizes women grotesquely in Buck versus Bell, other states uh, in the South are reimposing peonage and suppressing voting rights. And, and Holmes is perfectly deferential. This case out of Colorado when states are doing horrible things to people who criticize judges and Holmes is deferential. Frankfurter will do the same thing in California when California judge tries to shut down judicial critics. So we're going to talk a little bit more about Thayerism and and. And sometimes, you know, the claim is, oh, well, he was just preaching deference to Congress. And I don't even believe in that because when Congress passes bad laws, I want them to be invalidated. I actually think, for example, the campaign finance law in Citizens United was a joke and was properly invalidated. But, but even if they are sometimes talked about just being deferential to Congress, in fact, that's not what he did and his disciples did. So I'm going to be very critical of Thayer in general and Thayer in in Frankfurter and in Holmes in particular. And then I'm going to just say, here's what a great justice looks like. And I'm going to tell you actually a great justice by contrast, Hugo Black, and I'm going to identify Black's contribution. Over the course of this episode, Brad, say, I agree or I disagree. So here's Hugo Black. And in each of these big, big issues, Black and Frankfurter were on opposite sides. Sometimes they were on the same side, but often they were on opposite sides. They were both put on the court by Franklin Roosevelt. They're both crusading liberals. They both are trying to undo Lochner. And most of the Lochner cases actually, to repeat, involve states and localities, not congressional action. So, okay, Akil, so you've defined theorism uh, as Akil Amar sees it. But, of course, we know that you love Justice Black. And so you may have a somewhat uh, you know, one-sided view of, of theorism. So I'm just going to ask uh, I'm going to ask Brad to define Thayerism for us um, as perhaps Justice Frankfurter saw it, or as he sees you know Thayer's uh, philosophy. Now let me just make clear from the beginning that Brad is not you know necessarily a Thayerist or a Frankfurterist or any of these, uh, but he's the expert on these. So we're going to ask him you know to give us you know, the the perspective as these fig as these titans uh, saw it, and this will make for a very interesting debate between Black and Frankfurter, not between Amar and Snyder. Okay, so um, just to be clear on that, we don't want him tarred with with uh, you know being against Gideon or whatever it might be. So okay, so so Brad, 
how do you see Thayerism? Uh, you know, what would your definition of it be, and what would Felix Frankfurter's definition of it have been? Well, sure. I think you need to just put it in the context of of Frankfurter's life. Frankfurter arrives at Harvard Law School um, in the fall of 1903, and Frank and James Bradley Thayer's article. Um, which is in 1893 in the Harvard Law Review. Maybe it's 1892. I can't remember. But it it really resonates with Frankfurter, and it says that the Sup- Supreme Court of the United States should not invalidate a federal law unless it's unconstitutional beyond a reasonable doubt. Right? He adopts this kind of criminal jury sort of standard for striking something down as unconstitutional. And, of course, the Supreme Court does that very rarely in the first hundred and, you know, 50 years of its history, the first time, of course, being Marbury versus Madison, and the second time being Dred Scott versus Sanford. So um, that has a lot of resonance in the the late 19th century and then in 1903 for Frankfurt. But then along comes Lochner versus New York in 1905, where you have the Supreme Court of the United States using the liberty provision of the due process clause to read in a freedom of contract and, and and Frankfurter realizes that this due process clause is empowering judges, as Holmes wrote, to sort of read their their laissez-faire economic views um, into the Constitution. And, and he thought that that was really wrong at, as, as well. So um, th- both Thayer and Lochner had a huge impact um, on Frankfurter the judge. And, of course, in 1937, the Supreme Court finally overrules Lochner versus New York and decides it's going to defer to both federal and state economic legislation. And that's sort of the but that's sort of the New Deal constitutional settlement, if you will. And, you know, two years later, Frankfurter joins the Supreme Court where those issues are settled and a whole new host of issues start facing the court. And but what Frankfurter has a lot in common with Hugo Black is they both believe in cabining the power of justices. They just have different ways of doing it. With Hugo Black preferring bright line rules like total incorporation and Frankfurter believing more um, in standards, um, most of those standards coming from Supreme Court precedent as a way to put a break on justices. So this is, Andy, takes us right to Dobbs, which you've had nine episodes on, and you hear all these people who said, oh, the Supreme Court has never cut back on rights before, and it's not true. As Brad just said, 1937 was a major retrenchment on a half century of jurisprudence, rights-based, but the rights weren't women's reproductive rights, like Roe and Casey, but liberty of contract and property rights, um, a la Lochner. And Franklin Roosevelt is putting people on the court to undo Lochner, just as Donald Trump and, and before him, George W. Bush, and before him, Ronald Reagan, tried to put people on the court to basically, in effect, undo Roe versus Wade. Two of the most interesting justices that Roosevelt put on the court are Hugo Black and Felix Frankfurter, and they both agree that Lochner must go. And but uh, as Brad said, they have different visions going forward about what judges should be doing, even though they both agree that judges shouldn't be doing Lochner. And I associate Felix Frankfurter with one approach, 
a kind of judicial modesty approach um, with maybe a little bit more emphasis. Also, Brad reminds us on modesty vis-a-vis both precedent and legislative action, maybe state or federal, versus a different approach, which is Hugo Black's approach, which is more classically originalist. And I'm going to try to ask some questions about whether originalism really compares favorably or unfavorably to this Frankfurter-based alternative. And one way of doing that will be to actually talk about the situations where Black and Frankfurter disagreed, not so much where they agreed, because they agreed on a bunch of things. But if we're going to have to choose going forward, which is the better approach, I think it's best illuminated by identifying some of the main areas where they they disagreed, where you're really going to see originalism nicely um, contrasted with a a different approach. So I guess really the questions that we're going to ask ourselves uh, when we look at these different cases are uh, what is the originalist approach to this case as exemplified by Black's approach? What is the theorist or Frank- Frankfurtian approach to the uh, case as exemplified by Frankfurter? And did they, in fact, deviate from their general doctrines? And if they didn't, then these would be fair tests of those doctrines. And then we'll see, okay, here's how the case came out, and, you know, uh, what do we think about that? And then you move on to the next one. And then at the end, maybe we'll have a sense of, uh, you know, how originalism stands up under the assault of this contrasting style. But before we talk about the cases, let's let's listen let's listen to Brad tell us a little bit about uh, the the nomination process for Felix Frankfurter because that will help to set the stage for for these cases. So Frankfurter was nominated to replace. Benjamin Cardozo, who was a giant in American law, mostly um, as a a judge on the New York Court of Appeals, which is the highest court um, in the state of New York for some common law opinions that he wrote about torts and industrial accidents. So he had a huge act to follow. But the outcry when Frankfurter was nominated, there was a huge fight inside the Roosevelt administration. You wanted um, you had Democratic Party politicians like Homer Cummings, who was his attorney general, and like his postmaster general, who wanted to to distinguish some political points with the nomination. And then you had these left-wing New Dealers, um, including William O. Douglas, um, who said we needed, and Robert Jackson, um, and you know the both future justices themselves, who said, no, we need Frankfurter. We need to put Frankfurter on the court to challenge Charles Evans Hughes, to keep him honest, because Frankfurter will lead to the, will lead the court. And in many ways, you know, Frankfurter was set up to fail because no one justice is capable um, of leading the court. There are nine people on there and and particularly the types of political figures that Roosevelt was nominating to this to the court were strong personalities. And I think we, we saw with Harlan Fist Stone when he became chief justice, it was impossible to control this group of what one scholar calls the four prima donnas, Frankfurter, Black, Douglas, and Robert Jackson. You know, so I think he was in some way set up to fail. And the backlash from the public to, for Frankfurter's nomination was just fierce, right? The kind of anti-Semitism combined with this rabid post-war, World War II, um, excuse me, anti-communism kind of reared its ugly head. And all he was compelled to testify before the United States Senate. He was the first justice who had a basically an open-ended question and answer session about his constitutional views. Um, the only other 
Supreme Court nominee, um, whoever testified was Harlan Fist Stone in 1925, and that was solely about his activity as attorney general, which was his job right before that. So after Frankfurter, every nominee testified Frankfurter was the first. So Robert Bork, Robert Bork and Brett Kavanaugh and, and Clarence Thomas all have Frankfurter to thank. Right. Well, Frankfurter didn't want to come. Right. He didn't want to come, Akil. Right. He said, I'm not coming. They said, no, 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 you have to come. Right. There was a particularly horrible senator on this committee, Senator McCarran of, of Nevada. And he was like Joe McCarthy um, before Joe McCarthy. And he was trying to hurl the communist stone at Frankfurter by his association with his friend Harold Lasky, who was a socialist political scientist at the London School of Economics. There were some horrible people who testified against Frankfurter in that hearing. And and rather than be humiliated at the hearing, right, we've seen um, Supreme Court nominations um, where the nominee is humiliated, and it's a humiliating experience. Um, the nomination hearing was a triumphant experience for Frankfurter to be able to show that he was 100% American and a, a complete anti-communist, and he really um, almost toyed with Senator McCarran Um, during the question and answer session, and he was confirmed by voice vote. There was no vote taken on on his nomination, but by voice vote, the Senate confirmed him. Um, But the hopes for him among liberals um, was super high um, as the future intellectual leader of the Supreme Court, and it turned out um, not to be the case because, as I said at the start of this part two of the podcast, the issues had changed, right? The New Deal settlement had, the, the Supreme Court had decided to defer to all um, economic legislation, state and federal, and a new set of issues cropped up at the court. And that those new set of issues are what put Frankfurter and Black's different approaches of cabining judicial power in, in full view. Right. These justices were, who were put on the court by an ideological president accomplished their main mission, which was to bury Roe versus Wade. I, I mean, to bury, uh, oops, no, I, I, to bury Lochner. Okay. So, but then, as Brad said, other issues emerged. And then the question is whether they were going to agree or disagree about that. There's new set of issues once Lochner was dead and buried post 37. And after all, that's the appropriate uh, forum, if you will, for protesting ju- theories of jurisprudence because. You know, if you already decided beforehand uh, and you will all agree, then there's there's no test. So now you well, have new and, issues. And, 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 and another way, Eddie, another way of asking is that, so why was Lochner wrong? Some people think, oh, Lochner was wrong because judges just should defer to legislatures more generally. Other people say Lochner was wrong because actually the Constitution doesn't quite say liberty of contract and substantive due process, and it does say other things. So those are two different approaches. One, I think, associated especially with Frankfurter, a certain kind of judicial uh, deference to legislature tradition, and a different one associated with Hugo Black, paying attention to what the text, history, and structure of the Constitution actually say. And those going forward, both of those will converge in, in being anti-Lochner, but going forward, they will diverge in at least some cases, as indeed Black and, and Frankfurter would diverge. And I'm hoping actually I can give you the, the biggest example, uh, the biggest one or two, get Brad's thoughts on, on those and um, and then sort of move forward. But, but if you ask me the 
two biggest issues where there was a divergence. I would say the biggest is the most important issue, uh, perhaps, of the 20th century, surely one of the three biggest issues of the, the late 20th century. You might think uh, Brown and race was one. Another involves malapportionment of legislatures, but a third involves whether and how the Bill of Rights applies against states and localities. What our audience knows is the incorporation debate. Does the 14th Amendment, properly understood, incorporate, that is, make applicable against uh, states and localities, the Bill of Rights? And in a very famous debate between Frankfurter and Black, with Frankfurter at least initially prevailing, and Black was in dissent, in a case called Adamson versus California, and they've both now been on the court for several years, so you're getting them in their in their prime. They, they've got their sea legs under them. Black writes a very famous dissent saying the Bill of Rights does apply against the states and against localities because the 14th Amendment was clearly designed to make the Bill of Rights apply against the states, to incorporate against the states. The sentence in particular of the 14th Amendment, because Black was a textualist and also paid a lot of attention to original intent, history, Black says the text and history of the following sentence was the key. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. And for Black, that meant freedom of speech, freedom of the press, free exercise of religion, the right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures, the double jeopardy, right of counsel, right of confrontation, and so on. It meant, actually, in effect, Amendments 1 through 8. And he says that in an epic dissent in Adamson, the majority rules against him, and Frankfurter writes a, a concurrence that specifically tries to engage Black's um, evidence. There's an earlier tussle on this, actually, in a case which we'll come back to, called Betts versus Brady, which will eventually get reversed in Gideon versus Wainwright, which we'll talk about. But the real big slugfest, I think most people would say, is Adamson versus California. I'm basically with Black in thinking that at a minimum, the 14th Amendment was designed to uh, incorporate these rights against states. Frankfurter, I think, has a point that it's not limited. 14th Amendment, in, uh, in my view, isn't limited to Amendments 1 through 8, as Hugo Black thought. But Frankfurter not only thought that the 14th Amendment meant more than the Bill of Rights, he also thought, oh, it means a lot less. And it's not the case that all the provisions of the first eight amendments, in effect, the individual rights provisions apply against the states. And on that, I'm with Black 100%. Yeah, the individual rights provisions of the first eight amendments do properly apply against states. And without that, which is at today, in the end, Black pretty much wins, not in Adamson, but thereafter. And without that, modern constitutional law today would be unrecognizable because almost all the important Bill of Rights cases that people think about today are actually incorporation cases. So, and I'm with Black, but I want to give Brad a chance to, to weigh in on all of that. Because on that one, which is a big one, I'm with Black and the originalists. Yeah, I mean, I think Akil, it makes an eloquent case for Hugo Black and he's done it before in print, and I um, really think Hugo wasn't a visionary um, when it came to incorporation and what Reconstruction meant. But I think a little context is super important, that at the time, and this was, is makes Hugo Black's achievement all the more remarkable, that 
great justices like Felix Frankfurter and Robert Jackson were really trapped in what was known as the Dunning School of Reconstruction that came out of Columbia University. And there was a history of Reconstruction that, um, you know, stereotyped um, the U.S. Congress as corrupt and Reconstruction as a corrupt, failed enterprise. And um, Eric Foner didn't exist right, and to correct our notion of what Reconstruction was all about. Um, so you had these justices in 1947 kind of shooting in the dark about Reconstruction, and I absolutely agree with Hugo Black that the Privileges or Immunities Clause um, incorporated um, the first eight amendments. That is, in, that is totally true if you look at Corfield versus Coriel, if you look at the 1866 Civil Rights Act, if you look at Jacob Howard's speech, if you look at the drafter, John Bigham. I agree with Hugo 100%. But yet, I just want to point out a couple of things. I agree with what Akil also said, that the Privileges or Immunities Clause mean more than the first eight amendments. And that's not um, what Hugo Black said. When you read the 1866 um, Civil Rights Act, it's it encompasses um, more than the first eight amendments. Um, and and I, I would just point out that Hugo Black joined the decision that Frankfurter wanted to rely on, which was Palco versus Connecticut, which is Justice Cardozo's opinion, um, which says if you're going to incorporate a provision um, of of the Bill of Rights, um, it has to be fundamental to ordered liberty. And I don't, I certainly think, um, and I admire the way Justice Black educated himself once he got on the court and sort of learned so much about constitutional law while he was a justice. Um, but Frankfurter believed in following precedent and that a more piecemeal incorporation process based on Cardozo's precedent um, was a way to cabin judicial discretion and Cardo and excuse me. And, but justice black thought, no, 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 let's make this super clear first eight amendments only. That's the way to cabin judicial discretion. And really I don't, you know, justice Brennan's approach looks a little more like Frankfurter's because he incorporates through the due process clause um, rather than the correct way. I think Akil and I agree on this, um, which was through the privileges or immunities clause. But um, doing that, incorporating through the privileges or immunities clause would have required probably overruling Slaughterhouse and United States versus Cruikshank, which rejected this total incorporation approach to the privileges or immunities clause. We would have been better off um, I think as a country, had we overruled Slaughterhouse and Cruikshank um, on those points. So I agree that, that Hugo Black was on the right side of incorporation. And, um, but, but I think Frankfurter was, was thought precedent was a good way um, to put a break on judicial power and that he wasn't rejecting the idea of incorporating any, all of the provisions of the Bill of Rights, just the ones that weren't fundamental to ordered liberty. So here are two or three points, I think, that emerge from this very helpful conversation. One, that Black's approach, originalism, could be deeply inconsistent with precedent. That um, originalism has the possibility of overturning precedent. Yes, it does, and that's what we saw in Roe, and that's what we saw in Heller, um, City of Chicago, Bruin, when it comes to the Second Amendment, for example. So so that's a feature of originalism. By the way, that was a feature, see, because I think Hugo Black um, was clear and Felix Frankfurter was confused. That's a feature of the 1937 revolution as well. The 1937 revolution tosses overboard a half century of precedent, not one little case called Lochner. It's dozens, arguably hundreds of cases, especially if you 
count lower federal court uh, cases that are that are invalidating all sorts of laws in the name of substantive due process and liberty of contract and property and all the rest. So now Frankfurter gets on the court when some of that work has already been done. But if you're going to actually ask, was that work correctly done? Was it right to toss overboard um, all these precedents? Well, the one thing you can't say is, oh, it's right to do that in the name of precedent because you're tossing overboard all the precedents. Okay, so one, originalism is can be deeply inconsistent with precedent. And two, Frankfurter was actually a little confused on that because if you're an anti-Lochner person, you know, uh, as he was in the 1920s and early 1930s, you're an anti-precedent person too. Now, Here's the next point that Brown said. It can be hard to do originalism because you're hostage to historical research. And if historians aren't doing a good job, how do you do this? Well, and I agree. This is why what I try to do is do history well for the benefit of jurists who themselves aren't historians. Here's a third thing that Brad said. He said, so he says, don't blame Frankfurter so much because actually the professional historians weren't quite championing incorporation, and they weren't. So here's a third thing that Brad said, that Black was actually pretty heroic. Black did a lot of his own historical research, and and this is very dangerous, you see, because if you do some of your own historical research, you know, and you're not a professional historian, you can get it wrong big time, and and if you're going to overturn precedence in the name of that, oh, that's very dangerous. Now, I believe that Black got it right, and Today's professional historians basically agree with me and today's legal historians um, uh, and, and the people who have really carefully looked at this, um, who've written books on it, whom I really respect, like Michael Kent Curtis, like Gerard Magliocca, like Kurt Lash, yours truly, there are others. We span the ideological spectrum, Eric Foner, and but we all basically say, actually, the 14th Amendment was at a minimum about incorporation. Now, many of us think it wasn't limited to incorporation, and we disagree respectfully with Black on that. But but another thing that Brad said is, oh, originalism is going to be hard to do by a judge or justice on his or her own, and you're hostage in part to the, the best professional legal historians. So all of that totally agreed. Now, Frankfurter, in the end, I think, was unduly dismissive of Black, and maybe even because you see, Black didn't go to Harvard Law School, didn't have all the credentials. But, but here's the other thing. Frankfurter was doing so many amazing things before he got to the court, and even while he's on the court, like talking to justice, talking to presidents maybe when he shouldn't be, or, or doing other things. He wasn't spending all his time studying history, and I think Hugo Black, much to his credit, actually was doing this. So Frankfurter actually, I think, just got his history wrong because, and here's the final point, Frankfurter deep down didn't care as much about history. He cared about other things. I mean, he had other passions and commitments, and he wasn't someone who spent his life thinking a lot as Hugo Black did, about what the framers of the 14th Amendment really were trying to do. Now, Brad has also said one other thing. Oh, when it comes to congressional power, Friedrich Frankfurter thought the 14th Amendment, the Reconstruction, were all about congressional power. Well, if all of this was crappy, which is what the Dunning School thought, the entire Reconstruction, why do you just pick out the one thing that you like 
you know, Felix Frankfurter congressional power and ignore the other things that you don't like, which are or that you're dubious of and incorporating stuff against states and localities. But Brad is on this. I'll say we're agreeing. Hugo Black was basically right on incorporation. He may have made a mistake in saying only incorporation, but he was basically right. And on the facts and on these cases, just to be clear, Frank Fritter was wrong on, on the biggest issues ever before the court, because whether we do it wholesale, you know, total incorporation, black style or retail, retail clause by clause by clause. Is this fundamental? Is that fundamental? Well, if they're all fundamental, that's why they were in the Bill of Rights, because they are fundamental. Whether we do it wholesale or piecemeal, at the end of the day, today's Supreme Court, we live in Hugo Black's world, not Felix Frankfurter's. And thank God for that speech, press, petition, assembly, free exercise. Now, post Rehnquist and, and Roberts Court, the right to keep and bear arms as an individual right because of Heller and City of Chicago versus McDonald and Bruin, Fourth Amendment rights of uh, to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures, almost everything in the Fifth Amendment, double jeopardy, takings clause, uh, Sixth Amendment stuff, counsel, confrontation, compulsory process, et cetera, et cetera. Almost everything in the Bill of Rights today applies against the state's incorporation, Hugo Black style, and that's big and epic. And and Frankfurter was resisting all of this, you see, not just wholesale, but even issue by issue. He was he was saying, oh, yes, it's in the Bill of Rights, but it's not really fundamental. Uh, really? So on that one, wow. Score one, I say, for originalism and for Hugo Black. So I, I would just sort of take issue with the framing a little bit in the sense that um, I know you mentioned Brown versus Board of Education in passing, but I just think institutionally for the Supreme Court of the United States um, that Brown versus Board of Education and all of the cases that began in 1938 um, with Frankfurter's student Charles Hamilton Houston um, winning the case of Lloyd Gaines and then winning um, a, a bunch of graduate school cases and, and um, the unanimity um, of a lot of those cases, um, all the way up to Brown, um, was a far more important enterprise and, and one that Felix Frankfurter and Hugo Black um, were on the same team. And, and um, you know, again, they had some different ideas about remedy, which we can talk about. Uh, but to me, Frankfurter in the Brown discussion, particularly in 52, holding the case over for re-argument, you know, having Bickle Wright, you know, spend the whole October 52 term, look at the history of the 14th Amendment, was a recognition by Frankfurter that the history of the 14th Amendment, the authoritative history at the time in 52 was really bad, and that we need to do our own independent examination. And and uh, Frankfurter's really responsible um, for taking the issue of the history of the amendment or original intent, which I know you, neither you nor I um, think of as originalism, but taking that issue um, off the table and, and, and allowing the justice to think about how are we going to write this opinion in a unanimous way. And to me, that's a bigger issue institutionally for the court than the incorporation issue, which probably would have happened selectively over time, um, whether Frankfurter or Black disagreed in 1947 um, or not. Yeah, although just to repeat, Frankfurter is issue by issue by issue resisting enforcing various individual rights against states, as he was in on the facts of Adamson um, itself, which was actually, I think, about the self-incrimination idea. So here's now that's a big one. I think the three biggest issues are race, brown in the 20th century and incorporation 
and reapportionment. Warren and Brandon both actually say the reapportionment cases are uh, the most important things that we did in the Warren court alongside race and incorporation. Hugo Black basically is initially once again in dissent, and today the world is the world of, of Hugo Black. He ends up prevailing, and it's a grant, it's a battle royale against Felix Frankfurter at least twice, once in a case called Cold Grove versus Green, and then the very end of Frankfurter's time on the court, Baker versus Carr. And Felix Frankfurter basically says, even when there's gross malapportionment in the legislature, and here's what malapportionment means, it's not about the shape of the districts, that's gerrymandering, but the size of the districts. So malapportionment presupposes a kind of benchmark, and today the benchmark is equality of population, one person, one vote. So there were uh, jurisdictions in which a city, for example, of a million people sent one representative to the state Senate, the upper house of the state legislature. So a a city with a million people sends one representative and a city of 10,000 people also sends one representative. And the Warren Court, um, led by Hugo Black, says that can't be right. There's a right to vote. It's in the Constitution again and again and again. And this isn't a proper understanding of of a right to vote, where there can be such grotesque malapportionment. And Frankfurter, in dissensus, leave that to the political process to decide. And even if you think lots of things should be left to the political process, social and economic legislation, minimum hours, maximum wages, employment discrimination rules, and, and the like, environmental laws. This was one area where I would say Felix Frankfurter's mantra of deferring to legislatures um, suggests that he was kind of on intellectual autopilot because the fundamental problem when there was grotesque malapportionment is the voters couldn't actually solve the problem democratically because their votes weren't being properly counted. Uh, well, what does Black say on this? Black says in... Uh, Cole Grove versus Green, uh, which is an earlier opinion where he's in dissent, this is something that judges should be able to look at. And he says that again in Baker versus Carr, that this is justiciable. This is a proper subject for judicial intervention, judicial power. And and Frankfurter, in his, I think maybe his last opinion, definitely his last year on the court, dissents in Baker versus Carr. This will become, after Frankfurter's off the court, after he's been replaced, the one-person, one-vote revolution of Reynolds versus Sims. Um, there's an earlier case that actually Black writes called Westbury versus Sanders. And in Reynolds versus Sims, an opinion per Earl Warren, the Supreme Court invalidates the laws of about 40 or 45 of the existing states because there were very few states that were actually following the one-person, one-vote, equally populous districts rules for both the state lower house, the assembly, and the state upper house, the Senate. So this is a really big transformation in American governance, Reynolds versus Sims. And I think the person who really led the charge, beginning in dissent against Felix Frankfurter, was Hugo Black in the name of the right to vote, and I would say the Republican Guarantee Clause today. I'd love to get Brad's thoughts on that one. Okay, so that's great, Akil. Thanks for that on. I, I want us to kind of stick to Baker versus Carr, because I think to talk about Reynolds versus Sims or Westbury versus Sanders, uh, as you noted, our opinions that when Frankfurter wasn't on the court. So it, it's a little unfair to try to talk about those, but let's talk about Baker and 
you know, we can talk about Cole Grove too. I think Frankfurter's main point on which he has been completely vindicated is that one of the only bulwarks against judicial supremacy is the political question doctrine. And that's a doctrine that says the Supreme Court shouldn't intervene in inherently political disputes. And I think there were a lot of people on the left which did not take him seriously about the political question doctrine in Baker versus Carr until we got to Bush versus Gore and the Supreme Court of the United States decided, hey, we're not going to let the state of Florida decide who their electors are, but we're going to issue not one, but two Supreme Court decisions in a case where the Constitution delegates to the states the ability to choose their own electors. And the Supreme Court, in several cases, starting in Baker, sort of eviscerates the political question doctrine by only limiting it to separation of powers disputes. And really the only place where we see the political question doctrine come up today is in impeachment cases where the Constitution specifically delegates to another branch of government, the Senate, um, the ability to decide a case. So the political question doctrine means almost nothing today, and it has empowered the court. That's sort of point. And, and I think Baker versus Carr gives a little bit of a tell here. And I think that one thing that Frankfurter really objected to about Justice Brennan's opinion in Baker versus Carr and Justice Black backed up Justice Brennan on this point, which was surprising to me, um, given how much of a historian he was, was that when Justice Brennan says in his opinion that the Supreme Court is, quote, the ultimate interpreter of the Constitution, Right. His support for that is Marbury versus Madison and John Marshall's famous opinion where he says the court has the power to say what the law is, which is a very ambiguous sentence. And the context of that opinion in no way gives the Supreme Court the last word um, on the Constitution. It's sort of a one two punch. We're going to eviscerate the political question doctrine. We're going to declare ourselves the, the ultimate constitutional interpreter. I think those were big mistakes for the court institutionally. And, and I think Frankfurter thought they were big mistakes. And the last point Frankfurter made in Baker versus Carr was that you don't have a standard for deciding when a legislative district is unconstitutional or not. And what Brennan's opinion says, it relies on the equal protection clause. And it says that standard, and this is a direct quote, is well-developed and familiar. And that's really an abdication of that Baker versus Carr court with providing guidance to lower courts. And I think Frankfurter in many ways has been vindicated, not just in reapportionment cases, but also in gerrymandering cases with the court really struggling to come up with a standard for deciding when a district passes constitutional muster or not. Having said all of that, I'm more with Alex Bickle, as I write in my book, who told Frankfurter that he did not like Brennan's majority opinion, but he would have ruled against the state of Tennessee because the state had failed to do its job for 62 years um, and not reapportioning since 1900. And at the very least, it violated some form of procedural due process for the people of Tennessee um, not to have reapportioned. But I think written in a narrower register, Baker versus Carr would have been more powerful, palatable to someone like Frankfurter. 
But um, when you eviscerate the political question doctrine, when you um, declare yourself the ultimate constitutional interpreter, and when you say the equal protection standard um, governing the case is well-developed and familiar, I think Frankfurter was right on all of those points. And your thoughts, this is very helpful, um, and your thoughts on Colgrove versus Green? Well, I'd have to go back to Colgrove. Again, I think he thinks the political question doctrine is important, right? He's, He's afraid of the of government by this idea of government by judiciary. He thinks we're outsourcing all of our problems um, to the Supreme Court. And, um, you know, I, I think he thinks that the political question doctrine um, is important. Okay. Right. So and this is very helpful. I take is the following, that the undercounting of urban votes um, in places like Tennessee was grotesque and shocking and was actually racially charged. So, because black people tend to live in cities. And uh, the issue isn't just about what judges should do or not do, although that's important, but what the Constitution really is all about and not all about. And I think violations of a basic idea of voting equality are profoundly un-Republican. I do think the issue of gerrymandering is quite different. The shape of districts is very different than the size of districts. And I've actually been supportive of the Roberts Court in not wading into gerrymandering, but I'm a big believer in one person, one vote as a nice prophylactic rule for enforcing the basic idea of um, democracy, of voting rights, which, to repeat, in the cases that we're talking about, actually intended to involve massive underrepresentation of discrimination against um, African-American voters. So, so my only response to that, Akil, is that at the time, that was not the claim that was being made in Baker versus Carr. This was a case made by white suburban women voters from the League of Women Voters who saying, we suburbanites, our votes were diluted too much. Um, there was no claim of racial discrimination. There was no claim of what today we would call a discriminatory um, impact or effect or even an intent to discriminate. And I, I think that's a very different case. And that's a case that Frankfurter decided and is called Gomillion versus Lightfoot, which he wrote. Right. Um, two years before Baker versus Carr, he writes Gomillion, which is where the city of Tuskegee, Alabama, decides to create a district. And again, this is gerrymandering, as you say, um, Akil, but they decide to make a 28 sided sea dragon. That case was argued um, by um, Fred Gray, who's still alive today, a great um, lawyer from Alabama. And, and Frankfurt writes that majority opinion in a careful way. And Akil, I think you'll think this is great. But um, who does Frankfurter show the opinion to um, before he circulates it to the court? Guess who he does? Hugo. Hugo, right? Because they're friends, because their goals are the same, because he's an Alabaman, and because he knows that if he can get Hugo on board on this opinion, um, that he can get an entire court. And um, to me, that's a great moment. It shows, I think, a couple of things. Frankfurter cared very deeply about minority rights, right? He was... He asked Fred Gray at oral argument. Fred Gray put up this giant picture of the district. And Frankfurter, as he typically did, like Justice, the late Justice Scalia used to do, dominated oral argument. He said, where is Tuskegee University on this map? And it was way outside um, the 28-sided um, sea dragon. Fred Gray knew at that moment that he had won Frankfurter over, but he wrote a very careful opinion ruling for the black voters in Tuskegee, Alabama, on equal protection grounds, and and yet preserving the political question doctrine. 
right? And this idea that in purely political disputes, um, the court wouldn't interfere in preserving um, Cold Grove versus Green. So I, I thought that showed, um, contrary to stereotype, Frankfurter is a coalition builder. Frankfurter is not always deferring to the states. Frankfurter very vigilantly standing up for black voting rights. Now, Wrote how about, about it in the book? Great. Wonderful. How about standing up for indigent criminal defendants in felony cases? Uh, in our last episode, you mentioned the great Anthony Lewis, who was, in many ways, you said, spotted by Frankfurter, who encouraged Anthony Lewis to study law. Anthony Lewis, of course, writes a couple of famous books, one about New York Times versus Sullivan, Make No Law, but another one about Gideon versus Wainwright, Gideon's Trumpet. Gideon's Trumpet is about a case, and it was made into a movie, starring Henry Fonda, I think, immediately after Frankfurter left the court. And it was made possible because, actually, Frankfurter was on the other side of this, and Black now finally has five votes. The issue originally arose much earlier, in the early 1940s, in a case called Betts versus Brady. And in Best versus Brady, the issue is whether indigent defendants in all felony cases should be entitled to a lawyer at government expense if need be. Hugo Black was then in dissent. He said, yes, you can't have a fair trial without the defendant having a, a lawyer. And, and in a felony case where a defendant reputation is, is very much that issue and is liberty too, you have to make sure to have lawyers and Felix Frankfurter was on the other side of that. And when Frankfurter finally rotated off the court, Black got a majority for that result. At the time of Gideon, there were only five states that actually weren't providing for appointed counsel. Black wasn't invalidating an act of Congress. He wasn't in, even invalidating an act of, of most of the states. And even those five provided for appointed counsel in all capital cases and in, in most cities within the, the states. So there again, uh, it says right of counsel in the Constitution. You can say, well, does it say appointed counsel? And I've actually argued that it also says due process and fair procedures, and it's not really fair, and, and the government lawyer is paid. Why not defense counsel? And at the founding, even though there wasn't always a tradition of appointed counsel, there was a tradition of the judge helping the defendant um, if the defendant was indigent, and the judge is paid by the government. So I think a strong originalist case can be made for the result in Gideon. And Hugo Black, um, in my view, was um, a heroic liberal originalist there. And Frankfurter kind of disappointed me. What am I missing? Well, first of all, Frankfurter wasn't on the court in Gideon versus Wainwright. And, you know, so it's a little bit of unfair because we don't have a vote for him in Gideon versus Wainwright. He didn't write Betts versus Brady. Um, Justice Roberts did, um, Owen Roberts. And we're going back to the... Um, we're going back to the kind of incorporation debate, but I, I Frankfurter just had a different conception of the way of protecting criminal defendants, um, which he did his entire career, which was, he says, does the denial of counsel violate um, the right to procedural due process? And there's a case um, in the late um, 1930s, I think it was, it's Powell versus Alabama, and um, it involves um, the Scottsboro Nine. These are nine young black um, men, nine on trial. Um, one was 13 years old. Um, eight of the nine were sentenced to death. One um, was given a long prison sentence. And uh, the Scottsboro nine um, had a, were railroaded. Um, they were accused of two white women. 
um, of rape falsely. Um, everyone knew they were false. The um, um, women were um, were basically um, prostitutes, if you will, at the time, and, and they were um, covering their tracks. And so they accused. Um, they were all on a train together. They accused the nine black men of rape. They were um, railroaded in a trial. They had basically no access to counsel. And in Powell versus Alabama, the court held that right of counsel violated their rights. Um, to do process. And Frankfurter wrote an article and then New York Times after that case came down, championing the decision, complimenting the Supreme Court. And this is from the, one of the court's foremost critics. And I think he would have said, does this violate the fundamental right to due process? Frankfurter was great on criminal cases. He and Hugo, again, like I know you like to emphasize the kind of antagonists or scorpions approach um, between Hugo Black and Felix Frankfurter, they're on the right side of a lot of these criminal cases. If you go back to the case of, of Julius Nethel Rosenberg, and I know that's a federal espionage case and not a state one, but um, you know they're the ones who are kind of jumping up and down and saying, we need to hear this case. You know, We need to just see whether um, the due process rights of Julius Nethel Rosenberg um, were violated. Unfortunately, Hugo Black's wife, um, Josephine, had, had just died at that point, and 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 Black wasn't um, able to do as much as he could could have could have during that term. And I don't fault him for it. But he, it was he and Frankfurter who were trying to protect the rights of criminal defendants, as they did on many occasions. I just think Frankfurter had a broad conception of procedural due process. This is why, again. Frankfurter and Hugo Black, um, even though they weren't on the right side in Dennis, in most of the cases involving suspected communists, they were on the right side together, right? Um, On Red Monday, which is in 1957, where the court rules in favor of suspected communists on the same day in four different cases, Hugo and Felix are on the same side. Because in a lot of those cases, Felix says that, hey, their rights to procedural due process to confront the evidence against them um, hasn't hasn't been met. So I think it all depends on facts and circumstances. Of course, I agree that Hugo was right on incorporation, but I think Frankfurter was very good in protecting the rights of state and federal criminal defendants with a capacious notion of procedural due process. Now, since you mentioned Dennis, I, I think Hugo Black dissented in that case. Yes. And, and Frankfurter yes. Was, um, joined the majority opinion. He concurred. No, he did not join the majority opinion. Oh, well, he concurred. He concurred. And, and, and I know in the last episode, we talked about McCullough versus Maryland a little bit. And Frankfurter was very concerned about um, the rights of the federal government to protect itself from outside threats. Why don't you, tell, why don't you just tell everyone what the Dennis case was? Dennis versus United States was the federal prosecution of members of the Communist Party under the Smith Act, which was a horrible law. Um, that was basically used to criminally prosecute um, members of the American Communist Party for their political views. And, and, um, you know, it was wrong. And I think Frankfurter didn't like it. He hated the clear and present danger test of his mentor, Oliver Wendell Holmes, um, that Chief Justice Fred Vinson used in the majority opinion. He did not think that the clear and present danger test adequately protected the rights of um, unpopular political groups. And so he concurred, and his concurrence was more about the capacious powers of the federal government to pass laws to protect people from government overthrow or terrorist threats. And, um, you know, he hated this law. He hated this prosecution. I think he was playing a longer game uh, about, um, you know, the flexible powers of the federal government 
here. And, and again, this is where I really think he's a McCullough constitutionalist. Did I think he get it, got it right? No. I think where his difference with Hugo Black is, is on the First Amendment, where um, Hugo Black thought the First Amendment had a preferred position, right, among all the eight amendments, and Frankfurter thought that it did not. And I think what Hugo Black was doing is what Elena Kagan would call um, weaponizing the First Amendment. And I think Frankfurter was worried about weaponizing the First Amendment to reduce the powers specifically of the federal government and to some degree um, the state governments um, where they um, retain power. Uh, And that really brings us to a case like Gobitis or like Barnett. But I think that's a big area of disagreement about whether the First Amendment occupies a preferred position and what happens when um, the First Amendment rights clash um, with a law of general applicability um, by the federal government um, or the states. So maybe, yes, Andy, this would be great if we could talk a little bit about freedom of speech more generally and, and other First Amendment freedoms. We've teased the Gabaitis Barnett issue in our earlier discussion, so let's, let, let's get to it if we can. Gabaitis is a case of two children of Jehovah's Witnesses in, in West Virginia, um, and those children were compelled to s- salute the flag at their school, and that violated um, their um, beliefs as Jehovah's Witnesses, and those children were therefore sent home from school every day um, rather than salute the flag, which is just horrible that they that the school um, refused to um, accommodate their um, religious beliefs um, in some way. That case um, was brought all the way up to the Supreme Court of the United States. Um, many of Frankfurter's close friends, um, closest friends from Harvard Law School, um, were writing an amicus brief for the ABA section on the Bill of Rights um, on behalf of the Gabitis children, um, saying that he should rule um, in the Gabitis children's favor. Um, But Frankfurter wrote the opinion. Chief Justice Hughes assigned it to Frankfurter. It was an eight-to-one opinion. The claim made by the lawyers for the Gabitis children um, was not a free speech claim. And I think this is very, very important to distinguish. It was not a free speech claim. It was a free exercise claim. At the time the claim was made, the free exercise clause was not incorporated against the states. It was incorporated, I think, in a case called Cantwell versus Connecticut, right? So um, after the Gobitis case came down, I mean, I think the, the court was hearing both cases the same term. But so this was a new sort of claim that was brought against the states. And Frankfurter, of course, who I talked about on episode one, owed his whole career to public education, and the assimilating function of public education thought that, you know, if the Gabitis children didn't want to be at a public school and assimilated into a public school, um, then they should go to private school because there's a case on the books, Pierce versus Society of Sisters, that says parents have the right to send their children to private school. I think the other thing that really drove Frankfurter and that he didn't mention in the opinion was that um, on five prior occasions, in the 1930s, and I document this in my book, and one of the longest notes in my book are the Supreme Court docket books, are where the justices on five different occasions held either the cases, raised no federal constitutional question because the free exercise clause hadn't been incorporated, or that the court should just simply decline to hear the case, right? So the court on five prior occasions declined to hear hear the case, and Frankfurter thought this was a slam dunk kind of case in Gobitis. 
I, I actually think, Brad, that uh, the Cantwell case was decided before um, uh, Gobitis came down. They were arguing at the same time, but, but not before argument, right? But but before it, before the briefs, not before it was. Well, briefed. but at the end of the day, the opinion is coming down after Cantwell has already been decided. Sure. I guess my point was to say that this was a new type of claim against the states. Like there were not many free exercise claims raised against the states at this time because right. of the absence of incorporation claims made until, you know, accepted until this term. And now we're seeing again how just how important incorporation is. Now, in that case, it's eight to one. Uh, Frankfurter's not standing out, okay? But then some of the other justices begin to realize they've made a mistake. New justices come on the court, and our audience will know I don't distinguish between those two. I think justices are allowed to change their mind and new justices are allowed to have different opinions. And one of the memes that I strongly opposed was the thought that a court can't actually reverse course because of new membership. Because if that were so, which is what I heard from my friend Sonia Sotomayor and my friend Elena Kagan and others, if that were so, we would be distinguishing improperly between a justice changing his or her mind, which would be okay, and a new justice having a different view, which would not be okay. And that is altogether too personal a vision of uh, law. It's, it's actually, that would be the rule of men or women rather than the, the rule of law. So just to repeat, the issue in a slightly different form is going to come back in what now is one of the most famous cases around, West Virginia versus Barnett. Some of the people in Gobitis, including Hugo Black, are going to change their mind. They're going to be new justices on the court, including Robert Jackson, write this opinion. And I think actually he's going to write it as the free speech opinion and not just as a free exercise of religion opinion. Frankfurter is going to stick to his guns and dissent in Gabaitis. And I think this is a big mistake in uh, the West Virginia versus Barnett case. And I'm going to be with Hugo Black and a certain liberal originalism. Um, Andy, I'll say a little bit more about why I think all the, the, uh, that result, Barnett, and all the others are actually are liberal originalist results. I'll give you a little bit more of the originalism. But to repeat, Frankfurter is going to be on the other side of that. And I know you've got some thoughts on that, Brad, and, and uh, want to put Frankfurter's opinion in context. Yeah, I want to first go in between 19, I think it's 1940 when Gobitis gets decided and 1943 when West Virginia versus Barnett gets decided. First of all, after the um, Gobitis decision, there is a lot of violence directed at Jehovah's Witnesses all over the nation during the run-up to World War II. And and that sort of violence is so sad. And I I think um, that had a huge impact about what Happened because um, according to Frankfurter, and he could be wrong, he had an encounter um, with William O. Douglas, and um, after that, after the summer, after those cases came down, and Douglas um, informs Frankfurter that Hugo's changed his mind um, on the flag salute cases, and Frankfurter said, and this could all be wrong because it's only from Frankfurter's point of view, but he says, has Hugo been? Um, rereading the Constitution, and Douglas responds, no, he's been reading the newspapers about the deplorable violence um, against Jehovah's Witnesses. And then in 1942, in a case by called Jones versus the city of Opelika, Justice Black and Douglas and Murphy you know, announced in a concurring opinion that they've had a change of heart from Gabaitis. And I think what really rankled Frankfurter and what created a lot of bad will was that that wasn't even an issue that was briefed or argued. 
right? And, and that he felt really blindsided by that concurrence, right? That that the issue about whether um, Gabitis was overruled wasn't raised by the parties. It wasn't discussed in the briefs. It wasn't discussed at conference. And that um, this thing was sort of at the end of the term, um, dropped on Frankfurter's lap um, where, when he would have no um, opportunity to respond. And, and he thought that that sort of judicial um, decision-making was kind of dirty pool, if you will, right? And, and I, I think um, that really created a lot of bad will um, on this court um, leading into Gabitis. And, I mean, leading into West Virginia versus Barnett in 1953, and the vote was six to three, and and Frankfurter wrote a very personal dissent in which um, his opening paragraph talks talks about one being one of the um, most discriminated against from one of the most discriminated against and persecuted minority groups in history. And a lot of people told him to take it out, right? That it was too personal. Other justices told him to take it out. His law clerk Phil Elman told him to take it out, and he just wouldn't, right? He sort of felt strongly that about the kind of impersonal nature of the Constitution, that had, this had nothing to do with his personal beliefs about whether the Barnett children should have to salute the flag, um, but, but that he thought that public schools should have the right to set up the curriculum um, whichever way that they want, and whether that meant um, teaching evolution or creationism, um, that if you were um, from a religious group and you objected to that curriculum, that you had the option of going to private school. And so um, he, he was afraid about overprotecting First Amendment rights um, and underprotecting the rights of the states to create their um, educational curriculums or the right of the federal government to protect the country. You uh, you say in the book um, that he uh, in Gabaitis, you know, that he's weighing values um, and that he considers an important value uh, national unity, you know, and national security. Um, and of course, Akil is familiar with this as a constitutional value, I suppose, in the context of the original geopolitical theory of the of the Constitution. But um, this is a little bit different. Uh, and the the other thing that I thought was of interest in the context of some of the things we've talked about in this podcast is how he invokes Lincoln. You say he he quoted Lincoln. I'm just reading from the book here. He quoted Lincoln on the balance between promoting individual liberty and having a strong state. And he insisted that, quote, it is not the personal notion of judges what wise adjustment requires uh, which must prevail, unquote. National unity and national security, however, were foremost on Frankfurter's mind. And this is, of course, very, you know, you talk about how he gets personal in Barnett, but this is also personal because he's worried about Nazis and, and, and Jews in Europe and in the, in the context of, of World War II. So he's personal from this point of view as well. Sure, and he has three British school children of a former student who've been sent to live with he and his wife, Marion, right, to avoid the Blitz in London, right? So this whole issue of, uh, of the war is hovering over all of these cases, right? You can't disentangle um, these cases from the war in Europe and what eventually for the United States becomes war, war, World War II. And, and, you know, I do think these cases are hard, um, I do think the Supreme Court always balances liberty and security, right? You can't be absolutist in favor you know, of liberty and free speech because um, th- that's just not how things work, right? That's not, it's always about fit. It's always a balancing of interests. And whether or not Felix got that balance right in those cases, people of goodwill can disagree about. 
But I do think Felix was candid in sort of saying, hey, we have to balance the free speech rights and the free or the of the Barnett children or the free exercise rights of the Gobitis children about with, with you know the state's reason for doing this, right? Of course, Jackson, so, Robert Jackson, and Barnett, you know, might disagree. You know, to to some extent, you know, he, he famously talks about you know the rights not being you know subject to a vote, and that the the role of the court is to you know have a you know, a timeless um, and to some extent situationless uh, defense of of those rights. And I think here you can get into some questions about originalism, right? So. <laughs> So if your if your loyalty is to the Constitution as opposed to to you know precedent or something like that, you may you may have a little bit different result in these cases. Yeah, and let's bring in one more case. So I think Frankfurter gets it badly wrong in Barnett, and I think he got it badly wrong in an earlier case decided actually handed down on December eighth, nineteen forty one, the day after the date that will live in infamy. It's a case called Bridges versus California. And once again, it's Hugo Black on one side and Felix Frankfurter on the other. And in this case, there was a judge, a very thin-skinned judge in California who held in contempt and imposed judicial punishment upon a, a newspaper editor, publisher, for basically criticizing the judge. And Hugo Black says, in America, you don't get to do that. Um, you don't get judges on their own. And this isn't not, it's not a question of deferring to Congress, you know, or even deferring to a state legislature. This is one thin skinned judge. And on the other side, you've got political expression, free speech of a classic a core variety. And Black says, in America, actually, people get to express their opinions and you can't punish them for that. And Hugo Black, uh, that's Hugo Black's position, and Frankfurter dissents. And I would say, yeah, um, liberal originalism, that's the, the basic idea is the freedom of speech. It's not that speech can't be a bridge. Speech can be. It's Even freedom of speech maybe can be a bridge, but the freedom of speech is a system. And it's a system based on the freedom of speech and debate in Parliament. And what the freedom of speech and debate in Parliament is, and it's almost an absolute, actually, is in political discourse, people get to express their opinions. And I get to say I'm in favor of the bill, and someone else gets to say I'm opposed to the bill, and neither of us can be shut down. This is Alexander Mickeljohn's idea. Um, He's a great scholar. Hugo Black, I think, has something very similar. The big idea, this is liberal originalism, is the freedom of speech is the freedom, near absolute, of ordinary people to express political opinions. And therefore, Bridges is actually an easy case, and Hugo Black sees that, and Felix Frankfurt doesn't. Barnett, at the end of the day, is actually an easy case because the government can't prohibit people from expressing political opinions and can't force people to express political opinions. It's a political opinion whether the flag represents liberty and justice for all and and, and all of that. Um, And people are allowed to have a different political opinion because the people in in, in America are sovereign and government can't tell the people what to think or what to say politically. These are easy cases today. They're not they're not five, four in the Supreme Court. They're 9-0 in today's Supreme Court, and I say rightly so because Frankfurter was wrong big time. This is the problem with balancing when you don't actually have a metric. I'm going to give you a metric. 
pay attention to the Constitution. So just to summarize at least the four areas that we've talked about, why I'm basically with black, 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 and black against Frankfurter. Core idea of the 14th Amendment is at a minimum, and, and, and black should have gone beyond it, but at a minimum, the 14th Amendment is about applying the Bill of Rights against the states. Frankfurter disagreed. That's what Black thought. Black was right. That's the core, actually, idea of the 14th Amendment. And today, we're with Black. 9-0. And the conservatives say, oh, that means the Second Amendment, too. That's City of Chicago versus McDonald and Burroughs. So that's one. You know, Today, it's actually 9-0 that there can't be massive gov- uh, malapportionment. And that's in part because the right to vote appears again and again and again in the Constitution. And there's a Republican, the words, the right to vote, uh, a Republican guarantee. And if a state could basically wait some votes at, at dozens of times, hundreds of times the value of other votes, it really wouldn't be a government of by and for the people. It wouldn't be a Republican government. The right to vote would be meaningless if you can cast a vote and it can be basically infinitely discounted. So that's, again, liberal originalism. The big picture. Yes, Andy says, don't say liberal originalism, just say originalism, well done, fine. But we're talking about liberal jurists here, appointed by a liberal president, Franklin Roosevelt, to do liberal things of a certain sort. So I, um, the third one was when it came to a right of appointed counsel, I say the big idea behind all the criminal procedure provisions is protecting innocent people from the possibility of erroneous conviction. And again, we're not talking about invalidating acts of Congress or even invalidating acts of most of the states. Judges are experts on fair procedures, and it's just not fair if someone is convicted, not because they're guilty, but because they're poor and don't have a a lawyer. And so once again, I'm with Hugo Black as as a champion of a certain kind of liberal originalism. And the fourth basic core idea in America, you get to actually express your political opinions. That's almost absolute. Almost, almost, because maybe again, there's going to be some weird extreme case, but Bridges wasn't that case and neither was Barnett. So, so I'm with Black four times. In every one of those four, Frankfurter actually didn't quite see it. And in most of them, he actually said the opposite so and did Brad, the opposite in important cases. So Brad hasn't had a chance to give us Frankfurter's uh, side of the story in, in, Bridges in Bridges before you gave your concluding yeah. argument. Yeah. Yes. But, uh, but nevertheless... Um, so let, let's let him weigh in however yes. he'd like to. Well, let me start on Bridges first, and then I'll go more generally. How about that? Sure. I mean, I, I think the Bridges case was it was a five to four decision. Um, there is not an absolute right to free speech um, in the middle of a state criminal trial. Um, this was um, not um, this was not just free speech and political speech in the abstract. Um, you cannot disrupt a state criminal trial or try to sway a jury or try to threaten someone during a trial, um, you know, as um, Bridges was um, accused of doing um, while that trial is going on. And Frankfurter saw this as, um, are we going to have fair criminal trials or is the free speech going to trump um, a fair criminal critical criminal trial. So I think he saw rights on both sides of that issue. And again, he does not see the First Amendment as in a preferred position. Um, he um, is very worried about what Justice Kagan today would call the weaponization of the First Amendment to um, uh, validate, invalidate a bunch of laws um, of general applicability. And I think he's pressing about that, both in Gabitis, um and in Barnett. Um, thirdly, he's super worried 
about the evisceration of the political question doctrine um, in Baker versus Carr um, when the court declares itself the ultimate constitutional interpreter um, with no evidence except one quote plucked out of con- context from Marbury versus Madison. And Frankfurter is really his biggest worry more than the weaponization of the First Amendment, more than um, this evisceration of the political question doctrine. He's worried about judicial supremacy. Right. He does not think that the judicial that we should look to the Supreme Court of the United States to solve all of our problems. And that by engaging in judicial supremacy, you're actually hurting the democratic political process there. They are like muscles that atrophy when everyone thinks, well, we have this problem. Let's just go find five votes on the Supreme Court of the United States um, for it, um, rather than try to pass a law um, through either our state government or our federal government um, to resolve the problem. And, and he ultimately sided with Congress as the real engine of liberty and civil rights. And I, I think he was vindicated on that. So would you say that, uh, that Frankfurter would look at today's Congress and say it's not getting anything done because it's, uh, it's atrophied? Because there's been no, too I much think reliance would, on the um, court? No, I think he would share Akil's outrage about Shelby County versus Holder and about um, a Supreme Court um, invalidating a substantial portion of the Voting Rights Act um, of 1965, that they had no right to do that. He would be outraged by City of Bernie versus Flores, um, where the court, again, in another act of judicial supremacy, um, eviscerate Congress's power under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, when as Akil, who has written eloquently about this, realizes that Congress was going to play a co-equal role in enforcing the 14th Amendment, and they've been more effective in that role. But for Anthony Kennedy to say um, in City of Bernie versus Flores that we, the court, have to identify a constitutional violation first before the court can remedy it um, really has things totally upside down. And so, um, but but when you have opinions like Baker versus Carr declaring the court the ultimate constitutional interpreter, you get opinions like City of Bernie versus Flores. You get opinions like Bush versus Gore. You get opinions like Shelby County versus Holder. These were Frankfurter's worst nightmare. That's why this book, I think, is certain is relevant today with people kind of fed up with the Supreme Court aggrandizing its own power. Okay, uh, but uh, one word for you. I'm sure you've gotten this question before. It should be an easy one, but Oh, I think it's hard. Dobbs. Well, you know, again, like, so, so I think it's, it's complicated. You're saying how would Frankfurter decide Dobbs? Yeah, you, you see, because the very people who are outraged, they want the Supreme Court to invalidate the laws of most of the states, you see, on abortion. No, but remember, that's, not, that's not Frankfurter very much, and that's not Thayer very much. But, but I disagree, Akil. I think Frankfurter, as we talked about, wasn't just there all the way down. It was also following precedent, which, you know, much of our part two view spent criticizing him for following precedent. He would have seen that the court, um, although he may not have agreed with the liberty provision rationale, the due process clause um, that Roe engaged in, he would have seen the equality-based rights um, that Roe was protecting. There is no way he would have voted to overturn Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey in Dobbs versus Whole Women Health. He saw precedent also as a bulwark against judicial supremacy. So, you know, I don't think he would have been troubled by that case at all. Like Justice Ginsburg, he would have 
disliked the rationale of Roe versus Wade and preferred an equal protection-based um, rationale. But I, I think Dobbs would have been easy for him. He would have been outraged by something that doesn't outrage you, which is that, that the change in the composition of the court um, would lead um, to a new outcome only a few years after Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstadt, right? That would have really bothered him, just like West Virginia versus Barnett. And the change in the justices there um, resulted in a change from Gobitis. So uh, I think Dobbs would have been an easy case for him. But this is why he's entirely clueless, because his very presence on the court and Hugo Blacks and all the rest are because of an ideological president putting people on the court to undo the jurisprudence of the last era. That is 1937. That's what your book is all about. So if he thought that, he would have been clueless. I don't think so. I, I mean, first of all, a lot of those overturnings occurred before. Most of those occurred. Yes, but he was in favor of them. Okay, so the work was done. You know, but but if he had been on the court, Brad, when you you know when you reach a fork in the road, take it. If you're actually telling our audience that if he had been on first with Hugo Black, he would not have voted to overturn Lochner. I'm going to roll my eyes. No, he would have voted. Okay, so then, I mean, so then, okay, so now you're laughing. The audience can't see this, but this is bullshit. You know, well, because he was put on the court. Other people were put on the court to end the era of Roe. Oh, I mean the era of Lochner. That's what he was. You know, that was the whole point. Yeah. Well, if if I could just jump in for a second, I mean, it's not just that he was there to end the the Lochner, but that he. He you say time and time again that he did not like the reading of the of the due process clause in the Fourteenth Amendment to to be substantive due process. He denied the the that as a as a legitimate doctrine. And Roe is whatever it is, it's based on substantive due process. You know, I mean, you could make an equality argument. We've talked about that, um, you know, repeatedly on our on our podcast that there would be that there is an argument to be made about women's equality for. You know, justifying you know abortion rights, but that's not that wasn't made. And if he wants to do that, then he's got to be ruling differently in Gabaitis because you know the, then he's got to take the First Amendment, the uh, freedom of speech argument in Gabaitis if if he's going to go that way. So so I don't and, see and and he wasn't and he wasn't so great on women's equality. I believe you can correct me in Gosart versus Cleary. So you're you're. I, I, I love you, Brad, but you're just giving us a, a Frankfurter, to, you know, designed for today, but I'm not buying it Well, for today's liberals. Let me just respond. Like, you know, I, I just don't think Frankfurter was that willing to overturn precedent. He doesn't distinguish between good um, due process clause decisions and bad ones. At the time, um, he didn't like Pierce versus Society of Sisters or Myers versus Nebraska, not because he didn't agree with the outcome, but because he didn't believe that we should engage in a kind of substantive due process rationale. But he's not calling for Myers or Pierce to be overruled. That's settled precedent for him, right? This so is why, why when Lachner, he overruled... Why wasn't Lochner settled precedent? But he was... thirty-seven. It but was. It really... It, but a lot of people thought Lochner had been overruled by Mueller versus Oregon and and in other cases it was it was Atkins versus Children's Hospital right that was really overruled in 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 1930. But not just Lochner, all the cases. I mean, there there are dozens of them. There are hundreds of them. Come on, Brad. Seriously, I just don't. I, mean, I just don't think is an entire um, generation of 
of attitude and case law. That's exactly what Franklin Roosevelt is putting people on the court to do is overrule all of that. I, I hear what you're saying. I just think he would have been reluctant to sign on to any Supreme Court opinion that overruled a bunch of prior Supreme Court opinions like bowling pins, which is what um, Dobbs did without a different theory of the 14th Amendment. Right. And there is no theory of the 14th Amendment in Dobbs, as you know, um, Akil. It doesn't tell us what Section 1 means. Right. They're they're not espousing like, hey, this is contrary to the original meaning um, of the 14th Amendment. There is. Noah Feldman says engaging in a kind of historicism or traditionalism. I'm, I'm not. I'm not a fan of Noah Feldman's work on this. He's my former student, and he's the current Felix Frankfurter professor, I believe, at Harvard Law School. And he's a lot like Felix Frankfurter. He's zealot. He's out there. He's a journalist. He's he's everywhere. But um, I'm not buying that one either. All right, I hear you. We and and, and Noah, you have a you have a standing invitation to come on this podcast and defend your ideas about Abraham Lincoln or anything else. We'd love uh, to have you. Well, uh, and, I, and you see how nice. nice we are at first <laughs> to our, our guests. Uh, and then we let, and then we, you know, give them both barrels. Well, I, I loved it. Akil. It was This was super fun uh, for me. And we're, um, we're la- the audience isn't seeing this, but we're laughing. We're having a good time together. N- no doubt. And I, I would just go back to, you know, we're both students of Owen Fiss. And, um, you know, Owen said, um, undoubtedly to your class, and he said it to mine, uh, that the Constitution begins in 1954. And I just, um, before we end the podcast, just say, just what an incredible, you know, and one of my favorite chapters to write was the chapter on Brown versus Board of Education and how the court got there. And of course, the opinion has some flaws in, like Dobbs, not telling us what Section 1 meant. But it was an, an amazing institutional moment and one that Hugo Black and Felix Frankfurter um, were leading the charge. There is no way, I think one thing my book shows above all else, there is no way that Earl Warren, who does not get confirmed until February of 1954 because he was a recess appointment, could have done that on his own. This idea, this received wisdom that um, Earl Warren through dint of his political skill, was able to bring all of the justices together, um, you know, sort of magically did this, sort of ignores a lot of work behind the scenes by both of those two very powerful justices. And you, and you said one syllable that's so important that I want to emphasize to everyone. Um, so you heard that Felix Frankfurter was a really extraordinary mentor to so many folks. And Brad and I, we've had a lot of fun together, and we're, we're laughing sometimes when we're going back and forth. Again, the audience isn't, isn't seeing all of that, but we both had the same mentor, and that's the great Owen Fiss. I've done episodes on, on some of my role models who aren't here anymore, like Charles Black, like Walter Dellinger, like Telford Taylor, and actually, we're going to do an episode, Andy, very soon about Hugo Black, Hugo Black, no relation to Charles. But I've actually promised the audience at some point in the future, I'll start doing episodes on mentors who are still around. No one, you know, for me, more important than our mutual mentor, Owen Fiss. So, so actually, actually, Brad, maybe if you want to just take us out of this episode by, by telling our audience just a little bit about our, our great mutual mentor, the great Owen Fiss. Well, I mean, Owen was an amazing teacher, an amazing scholar, and, and and wrote a really seminal article called Groups and the Equal Protection Clause, 
um, where he really pioneered this idea and and theorized about this idea of um, the Equal Protection Clause as an anti-subordination clause, right, to prevent there being first-class citizens or or second-class citizens or by subordinating um, a group of people in this country. And and that's become a highly influential counterpoint to this idea of anti-classification or colorblindness. There's no way um, in, in... you know, five minutes I could capture um, Owen's scholarship, Owen's teaching ability, um, but he was really inspiring and sort of pushed me to think hard um, about the 14th Amendment and about justice um, and about fairness um, and about um, fair procedures, along with Bruce Ackerman and many other people um, at, at Yale Law School. I, I'm really um, thankful that I went there, and um, yeah, i just sorry I never had you as a professor because um, I've had so much um, fun on this podcast. Here, here are the things that I say about um, two people that Brad just mentioned, and I'll add a third for reasons that will become clear. In my most recent book, which I have not plugged in the last 15 seconds, The Words That Made Us, here's what I say in the acknowledgments. Two other mentors have also inspired me from my earliest days at Yale Law School. Owen Fiss taught me how to read a case and love the law. And Bruce Ackerman taught me how to combine law with history and political science. So, so Brad and I are both very much mentees of Owen Fiss and Bruce Ackerman. I mentioned a couple of other people, uh, but one in particular that I want to highlight here, I mentioned Guido Calabresi. I, I wouldn't have my job if Owen hadn't helped me and hire me as his teaching assistant and Bruce hadn't taught me. But another person who hired me actually onto the faculty was the great Guido Calabresi. All three, by the way, Sterling professors at Yale, Calabresi, Ackerman, Fiss. It's a chair that I now have. There's more than one at Yale. And, and of course, um, Guido, of course, clerk for Hugo Black. You stole, you took the words right out of my mouth, you see, because when I show up, at Yale Law School from Yale College. And I had a, you know what, decent enough undergraduate education. I'd never heard of Hugo Black. And I I had heard all about the great William Douglas, who was a Sterling professor at Yale, by the way, and whom I do not hold in particular high regard because he wasn't hardworking and serious and and, and committed and and he was sort of loose in in various ways. So so Douglas is not one of my role models in the way that, that, that others are. But I show up on the first day at Yale Law School, and they have Owen Fisk for one class and Guido Calabresi for another. And Guido starts to talk about the person for whom he clerked. Um, uh, um, Owen clerked for William Brennan and Thurgood Marshall, whom we've we've heard about t- uh, today, and Guido clerked for Hugo Black. And they start hearing stories about Hugo Black and saying, who is this person? And at a certain point, I start to read up about him. So those are my mentors, and they overlap profoundly with yours, which is why maybe in part we, we, we do actually see so many things similarly, even if we, we, we diverge in certain other respects. Absolutely. It was one of my great privileges to be able to interview Guido for this book and, and just to talk to him about Black and Frankfurter, whom he both he, he knew Frankfurter quite well. And it was reaffirming to me in Guido kind of rejecting the kind of Scorpion's thesis or antagonist's thesis and, and really affirming their, their common interests in, in cabining the role of judges, even though they had very different ways at arriving um, at that kind of s- common goal. One final insider baseball point, just about mentees. So when we do the Hugo Black episode, we're going to have to talk about how this fellow, who was, in my view, a great champion of African-Americans and people from the bottom, Jehovah's Witnesses, religious nonconformists, Jews, Catholics, immigrants, 
had at one point, Hugo Black, been a member of the KKK. It's complicated, and he had done it for political reasons because you couldn't be a senator from Alabama in that era without actually being connected to that organization. Hugo Black didn't believe that stuff, in my view. He picked as people very close to him in his life, uh, people who were immigrants and Catholics and Jews, people like Walter Dellinger, who clerked for him, who was Catholic, people like Charles Reich, who was Jewish, who lived with him after his, his wife passed away, and people like Guido Calabresi, this immigrant from Central Europe, Catholic, who also arrived, you see, at the United States speaking no English. Actually, that's not quite true. He knew two words of English at age six when he arrived in the United States, did Guido Calabresi, Calabresi, one of which was suitcase, I'm told. Okay, so Hugo Black picks Guido Calabresi as his protege. He can't pronounce Guido, so he always called him Guy, but, but he reaches out to a young Calabresi and Frankfurter, when Calabrese is a clerk on the Supreme Court, is actually, I think, kind of a little bit jealous because he, he sees Guido Calabrese and thinks, ah, that's, that's a young Felix Frankfurter in a way, immigrant from Central Europe, Jewish family, in, in fact, even though there was a conversion before Guido came along to Catholicism, and sees, oh, this, this is a, another little Felix Frankfurter and kind of wants to make Frank, uh, um, wants to make Calabresi his mentee, his protege as well, because he's got an eye for young talent. And then Guido Calabresi is nothing if not talented. No doubt. I mean, Frankfurter wrote Alex Bickle about Guido when he was clerking and, and, and said what a talent he, he was. Uh, the last thing was I thought one important thing in writing my book was after the KKK revelations came out against Hugo Black, Frankfurter was telling everyone to reserve judgment that, that Hugo, um, what, that was not who Hugo Black was and, and that he knew who Hugo Black was um, in working with him in the Senate um, on New Deal legislation. And, and, you know, he could have easily, as, um, you know, the most prominent Jewish law professor in the country, come out and urged um, Hugo Black to resign. And that would have held a lot of weight at that point in time. Um, but but he um, was telling his close friends, hey, hold judgment on this guy. Um, he was on the right side of every um, New Deal issue. Um, I know his heart. I know his mind. And he has the potential um, to be a great justice. And he was right about that. And speaking of uh, reserving judgment, uh, we're not going to reserve judgment on uh, the book Democratic Justice, Felix Frankfurter, the Supreme Court, and the making of the liberal establishment. We encourage you to do what we've done and enjoy many hours of, uh, of reading about this great uh, American, really you know, quintessential American story in many ways. And, uh, but... We will, you know, allow you to uh, reserve judgment on Felix Frankfurter himself, uh, as you can see from this episode. Um, the issue remains remains open. But uh, thank you very much, Brad Snyder, for two great episodes and many hours again with with your great book. Yes, thanks. This was a ton of fun. Thank you, Akil and Andy. I had a great time with both of you. Okay, and so until next week. Thank you, everyone.